Amen. You can be seated this morning. Man, I'm so glad that that Danny chose that song this morning because that's exactly what we're going to proclaim this morning. It's how great Jesus is in light of looking at other religions. As we look at these questions that we've been talking about, the questions that emerge, today we want to look at the questions of a world and, and how it really looks at religion. Now, I hope that your seatbelts are on because we are going to cover a lot of information. As many of you know, I teach um, at a couple of local colleges, but uh, one in particular, Tarrant County College, the Trinity River Campus downtown. I teach in the philosophy department there and teach a class about world religion. So we're going to cover in now 48 minutes and 29 seconds what I typically cover over a 20-week uh, semester. Okay, so I hope you're ready because, um, and I'm from Arkansas, so I speak a little slower than most. Okay, so uh, we'll look at that. But many of you have asked... Uh, ask about Jennifer and I and just how we're doing this week as we have come to a momentous event in our lives as we took our oldest daughter and moved her into college this week. And as we know, tomorrow is the first day of school. Can I hear any kids? Oh, that's, those are parents, okay. And so this car, this first cartoon, I think you can kind of relate because we get received that this week. And so you kind of re- see on the left is the first day of school is as you might be experiencing it today, which is the child holding onto the tree and the parent pulling it going, no, you're going to school. You know what I'm saying? And then maybe uh, you're seeing what we're like as Kara was heading off to school and we're holding onto the tree and holding onto her. Say, no, this isn't, you you can't go. But thank you so much. Many of you have been asking us just how we're doing. And and here's the deal. We honestly did did not shed a tear there. And here's why. College was so fun for Jennifer and I. It was such a great experience for us. And as we sought to raise our daughter to know God, to trust Him, and to, to follow Him, why would we not want her to experience all the things that we got to experience and maybe even more? And so we're excited about that, but many of you have been praying for us, and we appreciate that, and we're reciprocating that prayer for you as you go into this week and as you begin to send your kids off and in other ways. But today we're going to look at this whole idea of, and this is the question we're going to deal with, is Jesus the only way to heaven? Now, you're going, yeah, well, this is Eagles View Church, so I'm guessing we're going to think yes. And the answer is obviously yes, but we need to understand it in light of what other people believe. And as I was thinking about that, this question this week, Jennifer and I were talking and I said, I really... I want to make sure that this is relevant because this isn't about just gaining knowledge about other places in the world. I want you to understand, I teach this course as a pastor, and I tell my students that that's the the perspective from which I'm coming. We're going to teach it in a historical perspective in that course, but I tell them who I am. The reason that I do that, one of the first assignments that I give our stu- my students is that I ask them to tell me their view of religion. And so now for the years that I've taught this, I have all these first papers of just what's their background. Because, see, here's the deal. We have to first seek to understand before we can be understood. My whole desire today, sorry, I have to get my ear in this thing. Um, my whole desire today for you <clears throat> is not to gain so this amount of knowledge that you feel like, okay, I'm going to go engage my Buddhist neighbor. I'm going to go find a Hindu. I don't know where one of those live, but I'm going to go find one. We're going to talk to him today. I'm going to go find a Muslim because 
<clears throat> these are the three world religions we're going to look at. And we're going to look at who Jesus is in light of the questions that each of those world religions ask. So I'm going to encourage you to take some notes so that you, you have that. But it's not just that you would gain knowledge, but that you would first seek to understand what other people are coming from and the place where they're coming from so that you can develop a relationship with them. This isn't ammunition for you to get into debates. This is ammunition so that you know what the rest of the world believes. There is pluralism, what's called religious pluralism, which just means that there are all kinds of beliefs in our world. And many of us, as the rest of the world looks at the American nation, they say, you're a Christian nation. Well, most of us know different about that, don't we? We know that the religious nation that most people think that we are, we really see it get lived out in a much different way in the places where we work, in the places where we go to school, in the, the places where we live. But we need to understand what the rest of the world believes is we're going to be able to begin relationships that are meaningful to, to then build in that relationship and engagement and a discussion for this. But so that you understand the relevance of this topic today that we will cover and we will try to deal with, I want you to look at the, the landscape of the world. In the world today, there are 2.2 billion Christians. Okay? 2.2 billion Christians. Now, that includes, that would lump into that, uh, a growing religion of Mormonism because it, it came out of Christianity. I do not hold that Mormonism is Christian. That is my personal belief and my understanding as I look at Scripture. But I don't hold that those two things are similar, but yet it's lumped into Christianity. Roman Catholicism would make up at least half of that 2.2 billion. And so we would look differently a little bit with Catholicism. But all these different things, it also includes all the Protestant faiths of which people say they're on a church roll but never come to church and certainly don't have and hold a belief system that really affects the way that they live. So before we get too prideful about the 2.2 billion, let's remember that. The next thing is that 1.6 billion are Muslim. So 1.6 billion people in that group is growing rapidly by conquest and by choice in many different places of the world. 1.6 billion Muslims. We'll talk about that particular faith first. 1 billion Hindus, primarily all in India, in the nation and country and area of India. 1 billion Hindus. And the last one we'll talk about today is 500 million Buddhists. Now, as you look at a world landscape of this, and you kind of see this picture of the globe. There we go. Aspen, go to the next one. Oh, I didn't go to the total. That's okay. We'll look at that in just a second. But you see all the areas in red. That would be considered Christianity, where Christianity is today. North and South America. You see Europe, uh, the top portion of Europe, and then obviously in, in England area, but certainly up into Russia, because that is all the Orthodox faith, faith Russian Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox. Then down in, in South Africa and also the continent of Australia. You see Islam is in the green area in the upper continent of Africa and stretching up towards Saudi Arabia, Iran and Iraq in some of the area of the Middle East. You'll see Buddhism is all in the area over in the Chinese area, the, the area of China and some of the Asian countries. And certainly you see Hinduism is primarily the continent of India. What this all totals to is 5.3 billion people believe the four religions we're going to talk about today. 
So we're going to cover it. 2,500 years of history. What beliefs patterns are of 5.3 billion people. And now, 41 minutes and 25 seconds, we're going to accomplish that today. So have you ever taken a sip out of a fire hydrant? That's a little bit of what it's going to be like today. I'm going to try to give you lots of information, but help you understand how it is and what it looks like in the context of who Jesus is, because that's really why we're here. That our God is greater than all gods. That our God is literally the only God that is. And we believe and we stand upon that. And we want to proclaim that to be true. But the first thing we want to look at today, we're going to look at a question that each, one single question that is the major question that each world religion asks. And we're going to see how Jesus is the answer to that that one question. In Islam today, the 1.6 billion, the question that Islam asks is, how can the gap between a holy God and unholy man be bridged? How can the gap between a God who is absolutely holy and we who are absolutely not, how can that gap be bridged? We look at the concept of what our sin is. I'll never forget. I don't think he's in this service. I think he may be in the next one. But Chad Ling, I'll never forget when Chad was baptized a few years ago uh, out at the lake. I told Chad, Chad, here's the deal. We are going to hold you under the water one second for every sin that you've committed. And his eyes got huge. And I said, Chad, I'm just teasing. I don't know how many sins you've committed. He goes, well, I do. <laughs> that's, that's the problem, okay? But in Islam, that's the issue. With Chad, I was joking with what we were talking about. We're covered in the grace of Jesus Christ. But here's the deal with Islam. It is the understanding that there is a holy God. And we're going to ask the question, is the holy God of Islam the same as the holy God that we worship? We're going to answer that question. But as we think about this, is there a, there's a holy God that is unapproachable within Islam. We cannot have a relationship with Him within Islam. And we are unholy men, so how do we bridge this gap? You can't talk about Islam without talking about Muhammad. Okay, Most people would think that Muslims worship Muhammad. They do not. It is not Mohammedism. It is Islam. And so the reason that it is is because they do not worship Muhammad. They view Muhammad as the last and final prophet that brings an understanding to what Islam is supposed to believe. But we cannot understand Islam if we don't understand who Muhammad was and what kind of a character and individual he was. He lived in 570 to 632 A.D., now, if you make understanding of what that means, that means 570 plus years after Jesus Christ was on the scene. For as world religions go, Islam is one of the very youngest religions. It developed out of an understanding <coughs> excuse me, of Christianity, Judaism, and another faith that I want you to say with me because it's my favorite one to say, Zoroastrianism. Say it with me. Zoroastrianism. Now, this has nothing to do with anyone who makes the mark of a Z, okay? This is not Zoro, but it is an ancient religion that's just about died out today. There's only about 150,000 Zoroastrians today, but it was a Persian religion that was alive in the time of the King Darius. When the children of Israel were taken captive in the, the Medo-Persian Empire, Darius was king there, and Zoroastrianism, through a man named Zoroaster, was developing. And it has influenced, as well as Christianity and Judaism, influenced Muhammad and the development of Islam. 
So did you know today that as you look at Islam, they believe in a creator God. They believe in the sin of Adam and Eve, that Adam and Eve were the first man and woman. They, they hold many of the same belief systems in an undercurrent as Christianity and Judaism. They hold many of the afterlife or views of heaven from, they borrow from Zoroastrianism. So we see a lot of what we call syncretism. In other words, it just mixes it all up. It brings all these beliefs into and converges them into Islam. But how did Christianity, Judaism, and Zoroastrianism, how did they influence the development of Islam? Well, it all comes back to Muhammad. He was born in 570. He was born in Mecca, which is today Saudi Arabia. So we we know where that's at, or we go home and find out where it's at. Okay, check that out. His mother and father died shortly after his birth, and he went to live with his grandfather. Now, his grandfather was an interesting character because he was a chieftain and he had responsibility for a particular place and a particular thing in Mecca. It is believed that that Muhammad's grandfather was in charge of what's called the Kaab or Kaaba in Mecca. Now, what this is, is a large obelisk that contains an ancient meteorite. And it is called the most holy site of Islam. And inside this big black cube, if you look up and look up Islamic worship or anything about that, you'll find this image of millions of people circling the Kaaba. And it is believed that Muhammad's grandfather was kind of in charge of this area. So Muhammad was very intrigued with what this item and issue was. But before Muhammad came along, there were lots of belief systems among the Arabic peoples in this area, and it all centered around this Kaaba, or this area, this meteorite that they believed was a holy thing. And so Muhammad began to separate himself from this belief system. He believed that he was was partaker of a vision from the angel Gabriel. Now, the archangel Gabriel appears not only in the Old Testament Judaism, but in the New Testament as the angel that speaks to Mary. So again, we see lots of these ideas. He believed that he received a a, a vision from Gabriel that said he was to be the completer of these two major world religions that didn't quite have it all down. That is Judaism and Christianity. In 570, what was happening in the Christian church was an argument over the divinity of Jesus Christ, saying, was he fully God and fully man? And the answer that they came up with that we obviously believe today, he is both fully God and fully man. But this, was, this argument was going on in the, in the church at the time. And Muhammad saw some of these things. Once he received this vision, he began to believe that that Gabriel gave him a vision and gave him this idea of what this religion should say and what it should do. We're going to get to that in just a moment. But he faced opposition to this religion. Not everyone received it. You may not understand or know, but the whole term jihad inside of Islam, many of us think that it's just against Christians or it's against Jewish belief systems. In the understanding of what it was for Muhammad, it was actually against pagan beliefs that were not of this new belief of Islam that he was bringing out. It wasn't initially against Judaism or against Christianity, but it certainly later became that. He died in 632, but he had no male heir. And one of the key reasons uh, for this is, or, or this idea that he had no male heir is one of the key reasons why there's two major divisions within Islam today. 
One is called Sunni, which makes up 85% of Muslims, 85% of that 1.6 billion. And then Shiites. And Shiites make up the last 15%. Sunnis go back to the idea that the whole Muslim community kind of governs itself. There's an understanding of a communal aspect. Whereas Shiites trace it back to, since there's no male heir, they trace it back to the bloodline of Muhammad, much like a kind of Pope succession within Catholicism. They trace it back to individuals who are within the bloodline of Muhammad, so they trace it back to his son-in-law, who was named Ali. So Shiite means party of Ali. That's what it means. So Sunni and Shiite are these two groups. But when we look at Islam, why is it this issue? How can the gap between a holy God and unholy man, can it be bridged? The reason that this is such an issue within Islam is the word Islam actually means submission. Submission to who? Submission to Allah is who they call their God. Total submission. And this idea is that we cannot have a personal relationship with this God. We cannot approach Him because He is totally holy. So then the question comes, how can I work myself into holiness? The view of afterlife within Islam, you will see this image all throughout Islam, and it is a scale. An angel holding a scale. Because the belief within Islam is that every single one of us have a recording angel that actually goes around us and with us. And it records every good deed and every evil deed. And then at the end of time, Allah will call our recording angel to give an account. And our good deeds will be weighed with our bad deeds on the scale. And then Allah will make the final decision whether we get an afterlife or not. And so within Islam, there is no understanding of an approachable God. There's no understanding of any sense of assurance. Here's what Ravi Zacharias, who's a Christian apologist, who talks about this. He says, within Islam, repetition and mission take the place of the warmth of a relationship. There's no sense of the warmth of a relationship that the God that we worship in God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son, who went to the cross for us, we have an approachable relationship with Jesus Christ that we can experience today. How does Jesus answer the call of what Islam holds? Well, before I get there, let me tell you, there are five things that any good Muslim will do. And in doing these five things, the idea is that they rake up things that will go on the good side of the scale to oppose the things that might go on the bad side of their scale. Muhammad listed them as the five pillars of Islam. I recently took an eye exam, and if you're struggling to see this, you're okay because I'm going to make it bigger for you. So we're going to do this. So here are the five pillars. The first pillar is the confession. The confession is what a good Muslim will say. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. It is what will be played from the minarets of, of the loudspeakers, the prayers that go out. That's the first thing that's, that's played is There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. Every good Muslim will make this confession multiple times a day. They will also do prayers five times daily, beginning at sunrise and ending at sundown throughout the day five times daily. Also, for the Muslim, 
Friday is their day of prayer. So it's when they will typically visit the mosque or place of worship. Saturday was the Jewish day. Sunday was the Christian day as this was developing. And Muhammad chose Friday to be the day of prayer where they will pray all day. But every day, praying five times a day is the second pillar. The third is giving to the poor. It's called zakat. And what it means is at least 2.5%. Now, some of you are going, well, we believe in the tithe, and that's 10%. So now, hey, this, this Islam thing's not such a bad deal. But 2.5% is a minimal gift. And in some Islamic countries, especially Islamic states, this is given as a tax that is given directly to the poor of 2.5%. The fourth pillar is called Ramadan. Ramadan is the time of fasting, a fasting from sunrise to sunset. So it's a daytime fast that happens for the full month of Ramadan. This year, I believe it happened in June. And so every year it's at a different time, but it's for a full month from sunrise to sunup, a fast. And the fifth one is called the pilgrimage or Hajj. What this is, every good Muslim believes that one time in their lifetime they should journey to Mecca. And the journey goes from, Medeca, from Mecca to a town called Medina. And this circular uh, visit takes place where it is a holy site where it's an understanding that they are going from the place where Muhammad was born to the place where he had to flee from because he was ostracized by the folks who lived in Mecca for this new religion. He went to Medina and then he fought his way back to Mecca. And so there's this idea that every good Muslim will at one time in their lifetime complete this pilgrimage. Now, why do we say this? Because it's through these five pillars, it's through an understanding of doing what a good Muslim would do that they can gain some credence to the recording angel who says, now your good deeds will outweigh your bad deeds. But there's no assurance of that until the time of death. This is not so for Christianity. For in Jesus, we see this question, how can a holy God, the gap between a holy God and unholy man, how can it be bridged? Because of Jesus Christ. And here's what we see. Jesus becomes our holiness and our bridge to eternal life. Remember Ephesians 2, 8, 9, which says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works, uh, because it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one of us could boast. We don't earn our way to a saving God. But the sad thing is, as one of my best friends talks about, we become good Baptist Catholics is what we call ourselves, okay? Because we seem to think that we can earn our way towards a holy God, that somehow in the same way we think that our good deeds can outweigh our bad. If we do that, we are basing ourselves on the same premise that Islam bases it, that we can, our good deeds can outweigh them. But in Christ, that is not the case. Because Christ becomes our holiness. He is the one who took our sin on the cross. And we don't have to earn our way because we can have a relationship with an approachable God in Jesus. Listen to Romans 5. Just listen to the words of this. Romans 5 verse 9 through 11. And since we have been made right in God's sight. Amen. We've been made right. This is not something that we can do on our own. We've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ. He will certainly save us from God's condemnation. There's the answer for the Islamic faith. For since our friendship with God, something that's not available in Islam, was restored 
by the death of his son. While we were still his enemies, we were certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us what? Friends of God. Say that with me. Friends of God. This is not possible within Islam. A holy God could never be friends with humanity. A holy God is above humanity. He could never be approached. He could never be seen. He could never be touched. But in the person of Jesus Christ, in Christianity, we have access to a holy God because He lives inside us. The other thing we see that Jesus does in opposition to Islam, Jesus brings us assurance that our lives are already secured in Him. Remember what I said. In Islam, there is no assurance. Even until the day of your death, you don't know whether your good deeds have outweighed your bad. And for those of us who call ourselves Christian, there's no chance for us because one of the greatest deeds or the greatest deed you could do for Islam is to call yourself Islamic or call yourself a Muslim to make this confession that there's no God but Allah and Muhammad is His prophet. So we are infidels. There's no way for us And certainly, even for the Islamic person, for the Muslim who lives these things out on a daily basis continually, there's no guarantee for them until the day of their death. But John 5, 24, Jesus brings us this assurance. He says, I tell you the truth. Those who listen to my message and believe in God who has sent me will have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins because they've already pass from death to life. Your position in Christ is already set. I've said it before. I believe heaven began for each one of us the moment we accepted Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. Heaven is a relationship with God. Now, one day, we won't have the hindrances that we have. We won't struggle with the sin that we struggle with today. We will have a new body, which is going to be a message we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks. But Right now, you've already experienced that because you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So Jesus answers the questions of Islam. The second second, uh, religion we're going to take a look at today is Hinduism. Now we're going to take a look look at Hinduism second because it is likely of the, the three that we talk about today, it is the oldest world religion. Only Judaism, I believe, predates Hinduism and therefore Christianity because it flows out of Judaism predates it as well. But Hinduism is one of the world's oldest religions. What's the question that Hinduism, which results of a billion people, primarily in India, what do they hold? The question is this, can I be one with God? Can I be one with God? Can I have this relationship? The problem with the Hindu is that their whole idea and their whole experience is built upon worship. I said that about Danny earlier, that Danny would would love the Hindu people because the whole aspect is that they would worship. Because they worship not only one God, they worship millions of gods. And millions, what we call incarnations of God. In other words, those individual gods putting on flesh. And so we'll we'll look at a few of those. But there are three primary gods that Hindu worship. Hindus worship among all the other gods. They are, first of all, Brahma. That's the reason that the cow is worshipped uh, in many places in, in India. 
So Brahma, the second, is called Vishnu. And the third is the destroyer god, Shiva. So these are three of the primary Hindu gods among the millions that literally exist among Hinduism. Unfortunately for us, we have to ask, which god are they worshiping? Because there's so many. The system that Hinduism flows from, and the terms that I want you to, to know today, is the reincarnation system. It's called a circular or secular religion because it goes in this cycle. Because the understanding for Hinduism is that it's always going to potentially evolve into a higher life form. And so here are the terms. One that you recognize right off is karma, okay? It's kind of made it into our culture. But karma represents consequences. What karma basically is, just much like it, it kind of falls into Hinduism, if you do good things, it results in good karma. If you do bad things, it results in bad karma. If you're superstitious, you'll say, oh, well, they got what they deserved, okay? So that is a karmic type of statement. So karma is kind of what governs this whole life cycle. What the actual cycle is called is called samsara. Samsara simply means that it's a wandering. You don't necessarily know where you're going in life, but you are in this cycle, in this process, and you are wandering through life. As you wonder, you deal with a third term, which is your dharma. Your dharma is not dharma and Greg from the sitcom comedy, okay? Although it might, she might have gotten her name from that, but dharma simply means it's your duty in life. It's your role. It's your job. It's what you do in this life. So that's your dharma. And so the samsara is the wondering. The dharma is your duty. And it's all governed by this issue of do you do good things or bad things? Your karma. But the goal of Hinduism is this fourth term. And it's called moksha. Moksha simply means this. It's the release from the cycle. No Hindu wants to be on this cycle forever. They want an end to the cycle, which leads to moksha, which is the release to a place called, and here's the term you may remember, nirvana. Nirvana is a place of bliss, a place that we might uh, stipulate that looks like heaven. But it's very different in the Hindu mindset. So the Hindu is stuck living this life of evolving or devolving, depending on your karma. If you do bad things in this life, you go to a lower life form. If you do good things, you can elevate yourself. And so it's built upon this next issue, which is the caste system. Within Hinduism, there's the caste system. So here it is listed out. I don't have much time to deal with it, but it begins with the priest at the highest level. I love telling my students, if I was a Hindu, because I'm clergy, I would be of the highest caste in Hinduism. And they laugh, and you don't. So there you go. That's the way it goes. All right, so the priests are the highest caste, and then it goes to the chieftains and on down to a group called the Dalits or untouchables. These will be people who literally sweep the streets, people who clean the latrines, people who are called untouchable. They are not even considered people. There was a man that you might remember. His name was Gandhi, who spoke out against the fact that within the caste system, the Dalits should be democratically uh, represented. And it elevated this group to a large degree. So the Dalits are the untouchables who aren't even considered people they are the servants the lowest of the low and then animals and then insects and here's the darkness 
the Hindu belief. You cannot go above your caste. You cannot marry above your caste. You cannot be involved with a group of people above your caste. And it's dark. Why are so many people killing themselves in this process, in this system? Because there's no hope. The only hope that you have is to live a good life in this life that you might elevate yourself to a higher caste in your next life. And so Hinduism has no founder as the other religions uh, are a key chief holder. But it issues, the issue is the darkness. Can I be one with God? What does Jesus say? What is the answer of Jesus? Jesus brings union with God that Hinduism craves. Jesus answers the question of Hinduism because it brings union with man and with God. Listen to John 17 and the beauty of what Jesus says. As He goes before the Father and He prays on the night before He was crucified and He prayed with you and I in mind as He said, I pray that they, who's the they? It's you and I. I pray that they will all be what? One. Just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you, so they may be in us. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The idea is that unity is designed in the church, in the body of Christ, in our unity with Jesus Christ. It's designed that the world who believes all these other things that leads them to a path of darkness and a path of a cyclical religion or the path of a religion that seeks to to elevate their good works to such a place that hopefully God, just maybe God, will be appeased with, with our works, that they're maybe just good enough. The hope of Jesus is in our world that we would live out this unity together. But so sadly, as I look at our churches today, I see churches and I see people who are injured and hurt spiritually by church. And where is the unity that Jesus called us to? God has called us to love one another. God has called us to deal with one another in an honest and open and loving manner. Jesus calls us. He says in verse 22, I have given them the glory that you gave me so that they may be one as you and I are one. I am in them. And they are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Jesus answers this question of oneness for the Hindu. Jesus answers it because he says, I want to have a relationship with you. I want to be one with you. And I want your unity and your oneness with each other to be an example to a world who needs it. Is our God... The same God of Hinduism? No. There aren't many paths. There's one. We cannot ignore the statement of Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. There are not millions of God. There is one. Is our God the same God of Islam? Even though it represents and drew itself out of Christianity, out of Judaism, our God is not the same God of Islam. Why? Because if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you cannot believe that Allah is the Father. Because Islam would say there can be no representative. There can be no incarnation of Jesus putting on flesh and being God in the flesh. They're not the same. 
The third religion we're going to look at finally today is Buddhism. Why do we talk about Buddhism last? Well, one we could say it is the smallest of these four large world religions. But the other is that Buddhism developed out of Hinduism. I feel like we have to talk about Hinduism first. We talk about Islam first today simply because it's in the news the most, right? And we we see all the things that surround it. Hinduism is there, but then Buddhism is drawn out of Hinduism. For Buddhism, it really, for most people, is understood more as a philosophy than a world religion because Buddha himself, and we're going to look at his life, Buddha did not claim that he was God in any shape or form. Buddha claimed only that he was an individual, that he was a man. But that he was a man who had gone through this cyclical system and had reached that place of moksha or release and that now he was outside the cycle. But Buddha doesn't even call any um, desire to be led by a God figure at all. You could even say that Buddhism is actually atheistic. It does not believe that God is going to help you. In other words, for Buddhism, it's this. You're on your own. There's there's going to be no deity who comes to help you. You're on your own in this life. Whatever good you do, you've done. Whatever bad you do, you've done. There's no hope of anyone being assistance to us in this life. For Buddha, the question, and for Buddhism, the question is the same question that Pastor Bart dealt with last week. What is the end of suffering? That's the key question of Buddhism. Is there an end to this life of suffering? Well, to understand that question, you've got to understand who Buddha was. Buddha lived in a time that was 563 to 483 B.C. Okay? So we talked about Muhammad, 570 A.D., so on the other side of Christ. To understand Buddha, we have to go prior to Christ. Again, 563 to 483. Now, from a biblical perspective, who were the contemporaries of Buddha? Well, the prophet Daniel was likely alive during the same time period that Buddha was. It is the same time period where the children of Israel left the exile of the Babylonian or Medo-Persian captivity and went back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. So the character, the biblical character is Nehemiah. So Daniel, Nehemiah, these are people who would have been alive during the same time as Buddha. But who was this guy? His name was Siddhartha Gautama. Buddha was a later name. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But Siddhartha Gautama was the individual. He was a son of a prince. He was born in modern day Nepal. And just like Muhammad, Buddha's mother died during childbirth. So it's very interesting, and not only just these two, in the class that I teach, I cover about ten world religions, and it's very interesting how many of them are men who develop these religions and the mother was not present in their life. So ladies, if you don't want your child to begin a new world religion, continue living. Okay, there you go. And have an impact in their life, all right? Siddhartha Gautama was born there in Nepal. He was born the son of a prince. And a Hindu priest told his father, here's the deal. If Siddhartha Gautama ever sees suffering, he's going to become a religious leader. And you don't want him to be a religious leader because those guys are shady. Okay? There you go. All right. 
You don't want that. You, he's either going to be a religious leader or he's going to be a military ruler. Which one do you think his father wanted him to be? The military ruler. And he said, if Siddhartha Gautama ever sees human suffering, he will end up being a religious leader. So what did his father do? He sought to isolate him within the palace. And for his all his growing up years, he was isolated within the palace, was not allowed to go outside. He married. He had a child. And then one day, he decided to go outside the palace. And when he did, he saw, according to Buddhism, four sites of human suffering. Now, we won't go into the specifics of those, but four sites of human suffering. And when he did, he went back to the palace, sunk into a deep depression, and decided that he would go into a life of wandering. So he abandoned his wife, his child, and he went out to seek a following and to also seek some Hindu teachers who could tell him how to alleviate this issue of suffering. So Buddha goes out and he tries so many different ways. One way that he tries is he, what's called asceticism. He cuts himself. He beats himself. He does all these things thinking that if he can end, if he can actually go through suffering, he can come to the end of it. He also uh, deprives himself of food, of water, to the point where it's said that Buddha lived on one grain of rice a day. So this idea that you go into restaurants today and you see this big, happy, fat Buddha, okay, that is not likely what Buddha looked like. He was actually emaciated. Well, why do you, why do you go into restaurants and see that? Because that's what's called the happy Buddha, okay? The happy Buddha is there because when you eat in that restaurant, you too will become big, hat, fat, and jovial. And so therefore, the fat Buddha is one to set to say that he's had a, a lot of food and a lot of plenty and he's happy. But the actual Siddhartha Gautama Buddha would have been very emaciated because he, he, he came to the place where he was living only on one grain of rice per day. He became very disenchanted with all the, the, the Hindu priests that had taught him. And he came to the place where he actually passed out next to a stream and according to the legend, what happened was as he was there and he was so emaciated, he then fell into the stream and woke up immediately and became awakened to the path that would end suffering. Now, the name Buddha actually means enlightened or awakened one. So this is where he gets the name Buddha. It means that he woke up and understood what he was supposed to then do. Buddha never wrote down his teachings, not until several centuries after Buddha were any of the things that I'm getting ready to share with you about what Buddhism teaches, were they ever written down. Many, many centuries, several between 250 and 500 years after Buddha is the first written account of any of these beliefs. They were simply oral tradition or oral history passed on you telling one story to someone else and them telling it to others to, what, to get to what we see today. So what does Buddhism believe? By the way, how did Buddha die? He was 80 years old and he ate spoiled curry and died. There you go. Something you didn't know today. All right? There's no deity within Buddhism, but here are the beliefs of Buddhism. There are four, in order to end suffering, you must do four, or there are four truths, four noble truths. The first is to live is to suffer. Now, isn't that fun, okay? To live is to suffer. Can I get an amen? No, don't say it, all right? To live is to suffer. So 
Buddha believed or taught that to live is, is, is what suffering is. The second thing is suffering comes from desire. Now, here we begin to understand where he's going. If you desire something and you don't have it, it's suffering. James talks about the same sort of thing in James chapter 4. He said, many of us kill and we, we attempt, we do all these things. We desire something to have and we don't have it. And, and, and we're jealous over it. The truth, the little t truth that I think comes from, from Buddhism is an understanding that what Christianity calls ourselves is to die to self. But we can't do that in and of ourselves. We can only die to self by being alive in Jesus Christ. Amen? We can't do this in and of ourselves. So what he said was, suffering comes from desire. Number three is, to end suffering, you have to end desire. You have to come to the place where you don't ever want anything. That's the reason he went down this path to totally emaciate himself, to totally uh, be ostracized from relationships, to do everything he could because he was trying to end desire. And then release from suffering is possible only if you follow what's called the eightfold path. Now, we're not going into this, but here are the eightfold path. Here's what it is. Go ahead and go to the next one, Aspen. So it is right, um, right understanding, right intention, speech, action, work, effort, meditation, and contemplation. Here's the problem with Buddhism. How would you know if you were right in any one of these areas? Who do we base it upon? Buddha didn't call himself a god, didn't call himself perfect, only called himself enlightened. How in the world would we know if we are right or complete in any one of these areas? How would we know if we've achieved? And the answer is, you won't. It's a path, but it's a path that leads you only to faith in yourself. To get yourself out of your situation. Unfortunately, in the United States, we've adopted some of this in our work ethic that it's all based on you and you have to get yourself out of everything that you get yourself into. What does Jesus say to Buddhism? Jesus says this. In Christ, we have a Savior who suffered Himself to eradicate our own suffering. Here's what Jesus did. 1 Peter 2, verses 21 through 24 says... For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering. Just as Christ suffered for you, He is your example, and you must follow in His steps, not these steps. He never sinned, nor did He ever deceive anyone. He didn't retaliate when He was insulted, nor threaten revenge when He suffered. He left His case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. He personally carried out our sins in His body on the cross. That we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. What Jesus did was to take our suffering in order to eradicate suffering. Now I know many of you have gone through different things even this very week. And it has been difficulties and difficult challenges. You've dealt with children. You've dealt with situations. You've gone through hardship. And you said, I have dealt with suffering. But the beauty that Jesus offers us is this. He took our pain on the cross so that in view of eternity, we may suffer in this life. But our suffering will one day end. And it's wrapped up in Him. The final thing is, unlike Buddhism, 
we can have the assurance that our suffering will be swallowed up in victory. Look at this last passage. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 through 57. It says this, Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into the bodies that will never die. By the way, that's a question we're going to deal with in a couple of weeks. Is this question of what happens to us when we die? Our bodies have been transformed into these bodies that will never die. The scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For uh, For sin is the sting that results in death. And the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. You and I can have the assurance today. That Jesus took our pain and our suffering. And He gives us the assurance that we can have a relationship with Him. He answers the question of when will suffering end. For the Buddhist, they will never have assurance of that question. So whether it's Islam, or Hinduism, or Buddhism, the beliefs of 5.3 billion people in our world, Jesus Christ answers all the major questions of these religions. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for this day and for this time, but we thank you most of all for your son, Jesus. That you come to us and you answer the questions that the world is asking. And Father, with this knowledge that we have today, may we seek to understand others that we might begin relationships Father, might lead others to faith in you. Father, I pray for those who are here this morning that if any person does not have that relationship, does not have that assurance of that relationship with you, that even today they would receive you into their hearts, into their lives, to be the Savior that we so desperately need. If that's you today, I just want to encourage you If in these passages, if in talking about these religions, you say to yourself, I'm still on this journey. I'm still trying to figure out, is is what God has said, is it real? My prayer for you is that you would find that living relationship that so many of us have, that we find our hope in Christ. Father, be with them today. That, Lord, as you draw us, that we would listen and that we would obey what you call us to, a life with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Bart. Amen.